Over the next four Sundays, the lectionary will be guiding our worship together. And as Jed shared last week, there are four lectionary texts. There's the Old Testament reading. There's something from the wisdom literature, from Psalms or Proverbs. We have our gospel reading and our epistle or letters reading from the New Testament. And these lectionary texts are meant to guide the liturgists and the preachers and to inspire them each week. And as we heard also from Jed, they were chosen a long time ago for the church to discover and to rediscover today. Today's text, Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, comes from that lectionary. In my experience, I find that the words of Scripture are like little boxes, and these little boxes hold memories, people, places, seasons of my life. When I read the Exodus, for example, and if you ask me, I'm always reading the Exodus, I'm transported back to discipleship class in my senior year of high school with Ray Vanderlaan. Psalm 121 is where memories of Grandma Jenny live. Hebrews 11 takes me back to late nights with my best friend. We'd sat on her waterbed and tried to figure out all the different people who were mentioned in Hebrews 11. Romans 12 is the text that was preached at our wedding. Psalm 27, which contains my life verse, brings me back to the porch of my cabin at Camp Geneva, where I first discovered it. The Sermon on the Mount holds the smells and the sounds of the Mount of Beatitudes in Israel-Palestine. There are a growing handful of texts that have a lot of memories, good and bad, stuffed in their little boxes. My Isaiah 2 box is pretty full. In my required Hebrew courses and prophets class at Western Seminary, we memorized this text together in Hebrew, not in English. My friends and I, we wondered about it together. We studied it. We learned the most rhythmically challenging song inspired by verse 3 that I still don't understand how to sing it or how it works. We asked questions about it. We got annoyed with it, and we stood in awe of it. And I share this with you to give God some credit this morning because this text holds a special place in my heart, and God has given us an opportunity to discover it again through the lectionary. So praise God. I wanted to share that with you. Would you pray with me? God, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Christ our utmost concern. In your holy name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> this is what Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war 
anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today marks the first Sunday in the season of Advent. In four more weeks, after four more Sundays, we will gather again to celebrate Christmas. Advent, as you can probably tell by my skirt, is my favorite season in the church calendar. I won't wear this every week, but I just wanted to share it with you now. Advent launches us into the Christian year, beginning with anticipating Jesus' birth, ultimately the coming of Christ, and ending with a season of obedience and discipleship following Easter. Advent marks a specific and special type of waiting, an in-between sort of waiting. Advent symbolizes the present situation of the church as we wait for the return of Christ. The church today is in a similar situation to Israel at the end of the Old Testament. We, like Israel, we are in exile. We are waiting and hoping in prayerful expectation for the coming of the Messiah. Israel looked back to God's gracious actions in the past when they were led out of Egypt in Exodus. And on this basis, they called for God once again in between the Testaments to act for them. In the same way, the church during Advent looks back upon Christ's coming in celebration while at the same time looking forward to the coming of Christ's kingdom when he returns for his people. And I really love that about Advent. But mostly, I love this season because in the bringing together of the divine and of the finite, of God himself and of human form, we know without question, without a doubt, and with absolute certainty, that God loves people. That God loves created stuff so much that he would put it on. God loved us in the creation enough to save us, but God loved us even more than that. He endured our sunburn, our pulled muscles, the cough that I'm just getting over. God loved us so much and so significantly that that is how close God came, as close as your breath, as we just sang, as close as the pulse in your wrist, and as plainly as the cry of a baby boy. It amazes me every year during Advent that we serve a God who came into the world the same way that we did and lived just like we all do. One of my Bible teachers in high school used to say that God, in the form of Jesus, tabernacled, wore the tabernacle among us. And I hope to God that I'm amazed by that every year in the season of Advent. I think we can also sense some Advent waiting in our text this morning from the book of Isaiah. A waiting for peace and an imagined future. Isaiah envisions a strange scene where the mountain of the Lord, the place where God lives, rises above or is somehow taller than the hills surrounding it. And instead of streams of water flowing from the top of the mountain to a valley below, the people are the water that streams to the top of the mountain. These same people say, come, let's climb God's mountain and go to his house. He'll show us the way that he works so we can live the way that we were made to. After that, the Torah shoots out. 
the law shoots out of the mountain. And God judges the people and helps them to sort out their trouble. God commands them to beat their weapons, their swords, their spears, into tools for farming, plowshares, pruning hooks. And they feel no desire to fight with one another anymore. Instead, they are brought back to their original garden call. Care for the creation. Care for one another. Care for me. Come, O house of North Holland. Let's walk in the light of the Lord. That was Isaiah's vision. It had not happened yet. And, interestingly, it was shared by Micah. If you flip to Micah 4, 1 through 3, Micah uses these exact same words, verbatim, the exact same words as the prophet Isaiah. And you can find the exact opposite in the book of Joel. In Joel 3, God says, Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Some scholars see additional parallels between Isaiah, Micah, and Revelation 11, so you'll have to let me know what you think about that as you encounter those texts in your own reading. But in the meantime, it seems to me that this vision is very important in Scripture, and therefore it's important to us. So I'd like to take a closer look. There was a lot happening at the time of Isaiah. This was a tumultuous era in Judah and Israel and in surrounding nations. Isaiah was the prophet in Judah. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. Just north was the kingdom of Israel, whose capital city was Samaria, Judah, Israel. And Israel is surrounded by the Phoenician states, by Aram and Ammon. So we have Judah, Israel, and these additional states to the north. And Isaiah is concerned with Judah, with Israel, and with Aram. In 733, the kings of Aram and of Israel were pressuring Ahaz, the king of Judah, to join forces against the Assyrian Empire, which was in the process of conquering these different nations to the north. Aram and Israel said, Ahaz, king of Judah, come to our aid. Assyria is conquering us. Let's join forces that we all might survive. And King Ahaz said, Oh, hey, king of Assyria, I want to partner with you instead. Here's what 2 Kings 16 tells us about the decision that King Ahaz made. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pilazar, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold found in the temple of the Lord and the treasuries of the royal palace, and he sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. 
The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus, the capital of Aram, and capturing it. Isaiah was not happy with the decision of King Ahaz to partner with Assyria, and neither was God. A conversation between God, Isaiah, and King Ahaz is recorded in Isaiah 7, where God assures King Ahaz that he is aware of the threat against Judah, but promises that Judah will not be overthrown by it. Ahaz flounders in his doubt, in his lack of faith. And Isaiah says, Here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of your God as well? The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time like any other since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. In other words, don't do this, King Ahaz. But he did. And sure enough, Judah is threatened by King Zennacherib, the next king of Assyria. And in 701, and eventually by 586, Jerusalem itself, the capital of Judah, falls. This was a time of war, a time of swords and spears, when Isaiah hoped for one of plowshares and pruning hooks. It was a time of fear flippancy, forgetfulness. It was a time where waiting and hoping felt like the ridiculous, passive, lazy option. I can see King Ahaz saying to God and to Isaiah, are you serious? This threat is real and it's at our doorstep. You're asking me to walk, but we need to run. You're asking me to care for the earth, but we need to defend our borders. You're preaching about a time of international peace where all the nations hold hands and stream up to the mountain of the Lord, but we can't afford to be that vulnerable. Stop asking me to wait when we need to act. King Ahaz did not see that waiting is a choice. Waiting is an act, and a powerful one. Waiting on or for God takes a strength and faith that is rooted in obedience and endurance. Waiting requires a diligence and a perseverance that only God knows the depths of. Waiting is universally understood and yet rarely acknowledged because we see it as a lack of something. I'm not here. I'm not there. I'm sort of on my way to somewhere, so something must be wrong with me. Something must be missing. We see waiting as temporary and fruitless, and we label it as worthless, embarrassing, unbearable, and unusable. If we're not careful, we use waiting as an excuse to imagine our preferred reality Instead of waiting on God, we wait for what we want. Even when God brings us to the end of our season of waiting, we continue to grovel in the waiting until our desires are in view. Like King Ahaz, we pretend that we are sitting on the throne of all that there is and ever will be, and we get to dictate what comes next on God's behalf. We do this all the time, in small, unintentional ways and in big, manipulative ways. And it's because waiting is hard, and we want it to be done, and it's frustrating to wait. The bad news is that we do this all the time, and the good news is that God says, I am aware of that threat to you, because I'm with you, and I know that waiting is hard. The Bible is full of waiting. Here the psalmist 
as the psalmist waits. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or with things too wonderful for me. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Isaiah's vision in chapter 2 is an invitation to this childlike watchman waiting, one of complete dependency on our parent God, an alertness to the first ray of light, a reminder that God always breaks through the darkness. This waiting involves our entire being, our whole nephesh, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, all that we were first called to give to the Lord, to love the Lord with in Deuteronomy. All of us, all of our being must wait. It's not that our hearts wait while our bodies carry us around or that our strength waits while our minds live in tomorrow's task. We wait whole. We wait undivided. Well, ideally, that's the way that we wait. It's hard to wait. It's especially hard to wait with all of your nephesh, with all of your being. I can see in my mind Isaiah murmuring his vision under his breath as he leaves the meeting with Ahaz and God. Perhaps he first leaves in a huff, sneering under his breath. In the last days, Ahaz, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. Why can't you see? But as his heart and his mind catch up to his body, perhaps his angry pace begins to slow. Perhaps his pulse eventually matches the tempo of his feet, and his mind releases the tension that threatened it. And perhaps Isaiah finds a rhythm a waiting rhythm that ties him to the earth and centers all of his being on that waiting. I imagine Isaiah saying, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come. Let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. And we will walk in his paths. Oh God, that we would walk in your paths. That is Advent waiting. Advent waiting means holding who God is and what God intends for you and for all of creation, 
holding that over everything else. When that is threatened, and it will be by the circumstances of your life, just keep holding on to it. Keep walking up the mountain of the Lord. Keep investing in the vision of peace, singing the familiar words. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So we wait, and we walk. I treasure the metaphor of walking in this passage. We walk in God's path. We don't run. We don't skip or drive. We walk. <clears throat> walking is slow, deliberate, and intentional. Walking takes time. But most importantly, it frees up your eyes to notice It frees up your ears to listen. In that passage from Joel 3, the passage that's kind of the reverse of Isaiah, the nations come quickly. Did you notice? They come quickly, not slowly. But in Isaiah and Micah, each slow step is significant. God teaches, and we walk. The law is sent out. God teaches, we walk. It's sent, we learn, we walk. It's sent, we learn, we walk. This rhythm carries us to the house of the God of Jacob. It's slow and steady, discouraging impatience and flippant reactions. It's not uncharted territory. It's not slow because it's unknown, like when you're going somewhere for the first time, but rather it's slow so we remember to take it in and to honor God well. The walk requires obedience, faith, integrity, honesty, and sacrifice. It reminds me of a walk that I got to take this summer. Uh, My husband, my in-laws, who are seated over there, and I went to go visit my brother-in-law, Kyle, and his girlfriend, Erica. So Eric, Erica. Whatever, it's fine. Uh, But we went to go visit them uh, in Denver. And while we were there... The four of us, Eric, myself, Kyle, and Erica, climbed my first 14er. I was expecting applause there, but it's fine. My first 14er, Mount Yale. Yes, thank you, Jed. And let me tell you something. Walking up and down that mountain was hard. We started at around 3.30 a.m. And... uh, The adrenaline and brisk air had me moving at a really quick pace when we started out. But after a couple miles, I was ready to be done. I was ready to be at the top of Mount Yale. Because the higher we got, the thinner the air became, and the slower we moved. I was incredibly aware of my body as we climbed that mountain. I was aware of how hot or cold I was, how dehydrated I felt, when I needed to eat or rest, when I should reapply sunscreen— It was both physically draining and physically exhilarating because of the heightened awareness I had of my own person. When I was unsure where to plant my foot at the final scramble to the top, or when I couldn't quite make out the path, I watched my three traveling companions. I knew what to do, and I knew where to go, because the slowness drew my attention to their example. They were patient with me when I needed to take a break. 
and eager to start again when I was ready. They encouraged me when I grew weary and doubted my body's ability to finish well, and they celebrated with me when we did, in fact, make it to the top of Mount Yale. That was my very first sandwich at 14,000 feet. That's a walking story, a waiting story of mine. And in my first few months at North Holland, I've heard some of your walking and waiting stories. Some of you are just beginning to wait. Some of you are in the middle of it. Some of you are on the other side. But I think it's safe to say that most all of you know what waiting looks like. And most all of you have gone through many waiting experiences. This is where I ask for my youth for nods of affirmation. Yes, we have all gone through waiting experiences. For families and individuals in our congregation, here is a picture of waiting. Barrenness. Broken relationships. Choosing a college. Uncertain test results. The death of a spouse. The death of a parent. The death of a child. Grief and mourning. Feeling unheard or underappreciated. Questioning God. Nearing death. Seeking to better yourself. Longing for the person you love to come back to you. There is a lot of waiting represented in this space. There's a lot of walking and mountain climbing, and sometimes it feels like the mountain is a lot taller than 14,000 feet. During this Advent season, I invite you to connect to the places in your life where you are waiting. Notice how you are waiting. Don't be intimidated to engage it with your entire being, with your nephesh. Honor God in the waiting. Take on the work that comes with it. Many of you are. I encourage you in that. Dare to live into your garden call, even when it seems surreal or childish. Listen for the Lord's instruction. Heed it wisely. Wait as you walk. Walk as you wait. It may feel strange that Advent, which celebrates in part the birth of Jesus, would bring us to the table, where in fact we recognize the end of Jesus' life. But it is good and right that we partake in communion together because here we remember that while we wait and while we walk, we don't have to wait on this meal. We don't have to wait on this meal because God has already come close. God is here with us now. Through the breaking of the bread and in the cup, we receive Isaiah's vision of peace and restoration where all will one day be well. When all the nations will care for creation, for one another, and for God. When we will hear God clearly and love him faithfully. And in this communion supper, we know that God chooses to walk and to wait alongside us, giving us what we need for the journey, not because we're so worthy but because God is so good. This feast is a celebration of communion, remembrance, and hope. Together as the body of Christ in communion, we remember with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, that in Christ we have a hope that guides our steps in the walking 
and in the waiting. Would you pray with me? God, holy and right it is, and our joyful duty to give thanks to you at all times and in all places, O Lord, our creator, almighty, everlasting God. You created heaven with all its hosts and the earth with all its plenty. You have given us life and being and preserve us by your providence. But you have shown us the fullness of your love and sending into the world your son, Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh for us and for our salvation. For the precious gift of this mighty Savior who has reconciled us to you, we praise and bless you, O God. With your whole church on earth and with all the company of heaven, we worship, we adore your glorious name. Most righteous God, we remember in this supper the perfect sacrifice offered once on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ for the sin of the whole world. In the joy of his resurrection, in expectation of his coming again, we offer ourselves to you as holy and living sacrifices, and we remember the mystery of the faith, that Christ died, Christ rose, that Christ will come again. So send your Holy Spirit upon us, we pray, that the bread which we break and the cup which we bless may be to us the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Grant that being joined together in him, we may attain to the unity of the faith and grow up in all things into Christ our Lord. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf, and these grapes from many hills into one cup, grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.